I want to give a little commercial to the writers of that song. Um, they're a group called City of Light. Um, if you're not familiar with them, they're um, based in a church in Australia, and they obviously have very um, biblically-based, gospel-centered lyrics, and they kind of are writing modern hymns, right? It kind of sounded like a, a hymn with the verses and the chorus, and um, so anyway, we just want to uh, commend them to you if you're looking for some uh, good worship music to listen to during the week. Uh, you can find them on the internet, City of Light, and uh, there's uh, several songs that they've written that we, we sing here on Sunday mornings, but uh, I know uh, we should be singing all week long, right? And if you're looking for some good, uh, um, godly, God-centered, uh, gospel-focused, uh, biblically-based music, City of Light's doing a good job. We're grateful for them. Well, today we have the joy and the privilege of fulfilling one of Christ's commands to baptize some folks who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in him alone for salvation. Matthew 28, verse 19, we're very familiar with. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. What's the next word? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, even unto the end of the age. This is one of two commands that Christ gave his followers to practice on a regular basis. The other is to remember the sacrifice he made for us on the cross through communion. So baptism and communion are considered the two ordinances of of the church and should both be periodically observed when the body of Christ gathers together. And I believe that Christ intended both baptism and communion to be corporate events, which are administered um, by the pastors and the elders of the church, not something that we do individually or as a family in the privacy of our living room or our backyard pool. Um, it's, it's something for the, the entire body of Christ to participate in and to celebrate together. Uh, getting baptized gives us the opportunity to publicly identify with Christ and, and the other members of the body of Christ, so it's important that you uh, have the members of the body of Christ there to identify with, right? Um, taking communion gives us an opportunity to frequently come together with other believers to remember and to repro- proclaim the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross. I think it's interesting in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said a couple of times uh, when he was instructing the Corinthian believers uh, about communion, he said, and I quote, when you come together, uh, it wasn't something to be done individually and privately. Now, obviously, during the COVID shutdown, we made an exception and uh, said, hey, we're going to do it together in our homes, uh, but we're all doing it live stream, right? So there was kind of a fine line there. We thought we could strike and not... uh, in some way violate the spirit of uh, a corporate communion time. But um, it's important that we understand getting baptized and taking communion are not necessary for salvation. In other words, you don't have to take communion in order to be saved. You don't have to get baptized in order to be saved. Um, But they are imperatives that anyone who has been saved should feel compelled to obey. And so that's why we have baptism services at our church from time to time. 
And so to prepare our hearts for today's baptism service, uh, for what we're about to hear, what we're about to watch, I thought it'd be helpful for us to go back to the very first baptism service in the history of the church, which is arguably the most famous baptism service ever. And I'm referring to what happened in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Now, the book of Acts is the historical record of how the apostles fulfilled the commission that Jesus had given them. Now, most of us are familiar with the Great Commission found at the end of Matthew's gospel. I just quoted it. But we're less familiar with Luke's record of the, those, those same famous words that Jesus uh, said uh, before he ascended back to heaven. Uh, look at Luke chapter 24 just briefly before we get to Acts chapter 2. Uh, by the way, Luke wrote the gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. So these go together. This is like Jesus part one and Jesus part two. Um, Jesus um, gathering his disciples and commissioning his disciples. That's the gospel of Luke. And then the book of Acts is what did those disciples do after Jesus went back to heaven and how they fulfilled that commission. But I love the way Luke records this here. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Now Jesus said to them, again, these are the disciples gathered in the upper room. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now, we understand that promise and that power was a reference to who? The Holy Spirit. And we see that in Acts chapter 1, Luke continued his account of the life and ministry of Christ here. Uh, notice verse 1, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven and after he and had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but this is what I want you to focus on. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And we know that the Holy Spirit came as promised on the day of Pentecost where he descended in what looked like 
flames of fire and empowered the disciples who were still there in the upper room waiting so that they could bear witness of Christ's death and resurrection and call people to repentance. Look at Acts chapter 2 now. When the day of Pentecost had come, this is verse 1, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, and when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So this is important for us just to pause here because there's a lot of confusion about tongues in the church today. Uh, Listen, if tongues are not a known language, then it's not the kind of tongues the Bible talks about. This, this is what exactly, these people were given, these disciples were given the ability, the supernatural ability to speak an, another language that they had never learned before. But those people that spoke those languages understood it. It wasn't just some Baniyana Shirabada Yamaha kind of stuff. It was an actual language. And the purpose was to preach the gospel to the nations. And so the Jews were living there who were living there, devout men of every nation under heaven, and when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not, why are not all these who are speaking, excuse me, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, why are they speaking these foreign languages? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues, our own languages, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, ah, they're full of sweet wine. In other words, they're just drunk. Well, Peter wasn't going to let that be the conclusion of the crowd, that they had just been drinking. And so he stepped up as the lead apostle and preached the first of many sermons that we uh, find recorded here in the book of Acts. And I think it's interesting that his message was intended to set the record straight. And let me tell you what's really going on here. We're not a bunch of binge drinkers here starting early in the morning. Um, No, let let me tell you what's going on here. And so his words mimicked the words of Jesus in Luke 24. He helped people understand the scriptures. Uh, He explained that Jesus was the Messiah who had to die and then rose again from the dead. And he called people to repentance so that they could be forgiven for their sins. And it was all said and done. 3,000 people were saved. And the church of Jesus Christ was born on the day of Pentecost. I mean, not bad for your first sermon, right? Well, we don't have time this morning, or at least enough time, to, to walk our way through Peter's entire sermon, but suffice it to say that it was rooted in the Word, it was based on the Bible, 
It, it was riveted on Christ. It, it was focused on the gospel, and, and it required life change. It, it called people to, to do something about it, to not just hear it, but actually put it into practice. And God used it to bring the listeners under deep conviction and lead them to repent of their sin and embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And again, the sermon begins in verse 14 and goes all the way down through verse 36. But the section that I want to look at this morning with the time we have is verses 37 through 42, which is essentially the response to Peter's sermon, okay? Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, and this, by the way, was the content of his sermon, which was all about the fact, it was a bunch of Jews, by the way, and he was telling them, hey, just so you know, you killed your Messiah. And, uh, and just like the Bible, just like the Old Testament prophesied. And so, uh, and oh, but by the way, the good news is uh, you messed up by killing the Messiah, but guess what? He rose from the dead. And now he's back in heaven, seated at the right, right hand of the Father. And he's calling you to repentance. Now when they heard this, verse 37, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and each one, excuse me, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking bread and to prayer. So what was the response to this gospel presentation that Peter gave in obedience to Jesus' words back in Luke chapter 24 to, to proclaim repentance and uh, for the forgiveness of sins? It says they were pierced to the heart. They, they were, they, it's like being they were pricked with a, a sharp point. It, it, they were stung they were stunned. And so here this crowd that had gathered out of curiosity, you know what this strange phenomenon was, all these people, all these guys speaking in different languages and everybody could hear the gospel preached in their own language. Uh, now they stood there stunned. And so the double-edged sword of God's word had sliced through their hardened heart, had pricked their consciences and they were experiencing another manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They were observing a manifestation of the Holy Spirit and coming and giving the apostles the ability to speak in tongues and different languages. Now they were experiencing something themselves. Um, they were under the Spirit's conviction. John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. And so the Holy Spirit was not only active in, the, in his followers, in Christ's followers' life, but also these unbelievers who had just killed Jesus. 
and the Spirit of God was convicting them. And so they were overwhelmed with guilt, having realized that they had murdered their Messiah, who God had raised back to life and exalted to the right hand in heaven. And surely they knew that he would judge them for this heinous crime that they had committed. And, and so they didn't even wait for Peter to give an invitation. It's almost like as if they interrupted him mid-sermon and cried out in desperation, what shall we do? And so Peter responded, you want to know what to do? I'll tell you what to do. Repent. Repent, which is the Greek word metanoia, which means a change of mind that results in a change of life. In other words, you need to change the way you thought about Jesus, and you need to change the way you've been living apart from Jesus. And so repentance is a reversal, a 180, if you will, a total turnaround in, in what you've been believing and how you've been living. It's more than just feeling sorry about your sin or what you've done. It's a turning away from your sin and a turning to Christ in faith and committing your life to follow him and obey him as your Lord and as your master. In other words, Peter was simply saying, hey, you need to change your view about Jesus and who he was. He wasn't just the son of a carpenter. He wasn't just some religious imposter. He is the Son of God who died and rose again and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. They had rejected Christ and now Peter is saying you need to receive Christ. That's what it would look like for you to repent, to turn away from rejecting Jesus and to receive him as your Lord and Savior. I think it's important for us to understand that the call to repentance was at the core of the apostles' gospel message. You, you see it throughout the book of Acts. In fact, they followed Jesus' commission to a T. He said, and, you, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed. And so they included that language in their gospel presentation. Chapter 3, verse 19 Again, here is Peter preaching, therefore repent and return so that your sins would be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Chapter 11, verse 18 when they had heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. This was uh, when Peter reported about Gentiles getting saved and the, the, uh, the, the, the Jewish believers back in, uh, back in Jerusalem were dumbfounded. And they're like, well, wow, apparently God's granting them repentance too. Chapter 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. This is Paul's message on Mars Hill. We looked at it a couple weeks ago uh, on Easter Sunday. Chapter 20, verse 21. 
This was Paul's uh, giving testimony about his ministry to the people in Ephesus. He said that he would solemnly testify to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then one more, verse, uh, chapter 26, verse 20. Talking to Agrippa here, he's preaching the gospel. He said, I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. I read all those verses so that you would know that while there are a lot of people out there who may try to convince you that repentance is not a requirement for salvation, that's not what the Bible teaches. Don't believe anyone who tells you that, that repentance is not a part of the gospel. Repentance and faith. Repent and believe. Even Jesus himself said, repent and believe the gospel. And if you're still hung up on that, well, man, that sounds like you gotta change your life first in order to get saved. No. God has to grant you repentance just the way he has to grant you faith. They're both gifts from the Lord. We can't do either of those things. You can't believe without God's grace and you can't repent without God's grace. So he says you need to re repent and be baptized as an outward visible proof of your repentance. In other words, this would be one of those fruits in, you know, he said bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. Baptism would want to be one of those fruits that would be in line with somebody that's been, somebody has repented. And so Peter was commanding them to be baptized. Now, he wasn't saying be baptized so you can be forgiven for your sins. I think a better way to understand this, and, and I think it's a fair interpretation, is that he was actually saying be baptized because you've been forgiven for your sins. In fact, that preposition there, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, can mean on account of or because of. It's translated that way in other places in the Gospels, in Matthew and Mark. In other words, baptism is simply an outward demonstration of an inward decision that you've made to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And this was shocking to this audience, more so than us sitting here today. Why? Because they were Jews, and Jews didn't get baptized. The only people that got baptized were who? Gentiles. And that's what they had to do if they wanted to convert to Judaism. They'd have to get baptized, which, which symbolized the washing away of their defilement as a Gentile and them identifying with the Jewish nation. So Peter was requiring these Jews to be symbolically cleansed of their defilement and publicly identify with Jesus Christ as their Messiah. In other words, getting baptized, a Gentile getting baptized historically didn't make them a Jew. That was just symbolic. In the same way, getting baptized today is symbolic of the decision that was made in your heart to follow Christ. And so by being baptized here in this context in Acts chapter 2, they were Paul, or, or excuse me, Peter was challenging them to disassociate themselves from Judaism as converts to Christ. 
which would likely result in them becoming an outcast among their family, their society, for following the one that the Jewish religious leaders had just crucified because in their minds he was impersonating the Messiah. He had made it a whole thing up. Now you could see probably why some people think that this verse teaches that a person has to be baptized in order to be saved. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, This is a proof text that those that believe in what's called baptismal regeneration use to prove that you have to be baptized in order to be saved or go to heaven. In other words, if you die before you're baptized, you'll go to hell. Why? Because your sins aren't forgiven. Because you have to be baptized in order for your sins to be forgiven. However, elsewhere in Acts, Peter promised forgiveness of sins on the basis of repentance and faith alone. For example, when he uh, ministered to Cornelius and his family, the first Gentile convert, uh, this is Acts chapter 10, verse 43, he says, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Same thing with the... Philippian jailer, Philippian, or excuse me, Acts chapter 16, right? They heard the gospel, they believed, and uh, he pronounced that they were forgiven for their sin, and then they were baptized. And so the pattern of, in the book of Acts is, is, is hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and then being baptized. So you hear the gospel, you repent and believe, and then you're baptized. You hear the gospel, you repent and believe, and then you're baptized. That, by the way, was what some of the, what we know today as the Anabaptists discovered as they were reading through the scriptures. These are young men who uh, grew up in the Catholic Church back in the days of the Reformation, and they had all been baptized as babies because that's the way the Catholic Church did it and still does it today, that one of the sacraments Um, one of the hoops you have to jump through in order to be saved is you have to be baptized as an infant. And that's part of your salvation. It's one of the works that you do to earn God's favor. And so as they were reading through the scriptures, they're like, well, and these are are people that, that had become truly born again. They had recognized that they had been trusting in their works for salvation and they realized through the ministry of Martin Luther that salvation is by grace through faith alone. It's not of work so that no one can boast, right? Um, And so they were like, okay, we all got baptized as babies. Well, according to the pattern in the book of Acts, that didn't count. That's not the way the Bible says you should get baptized. And so they said, now that we've actually believed, heard the gospel and repented and believed the gospel, now we're supposed to get baptized. And so they, they began to re-baptize, get re-baptized. That's what Anna means, baptized again. And uh, 
that was not looked on with um, affirmation, obviously not by the Catholic Church, but even the Reformers had issue with that. And it's odd for me to think about this, but even Martin Luther continued to baptize babies. And so this was almost like the Reformation wasn't fully completed. And so the Anabaptists were radical enough to say, you know what, we got to take this Reformation even further than Martin Luther did in a good way. And they were actually uh, uh, had to go and hide into hiding because even the reformers were seeking them out and, and trying to kill them. But they took a stand for what we know today and we take for granted today, believer's baptism, that in order to be baptized, you need to be a believer. Babies can't believe. And so they shouldn't get baptized. Now those who want to interpret this verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and each of you baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. They want to interpret that to mean that a person must be baptized to be saved, violate one of the most basic principles of biblical interpretation. In other words, there's rules uh, that you need to apply when you, when you interpret Scripture. One of those is what's called the analogy of Scripture or what you may be familiar with, cross-referencing. And, and we know the Bible never contradicts itself. It all comes together and fits. And so any interpretation of a specific passage, usually some uh, obscure passage that contradicts the general teaching of the rest of Scripture is to be rejected. In other words, don't let one verse undo a hundred other verses. Let the, let the hundred verses lead and help you interpret that one obscure verse. And so even though this verse sounds like a person is saved by being baptized, it must mean something else. Why? Because the overwhelming evidence of Scripture is that a person is saved by grace through faith alone, not based on works. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Galatians uh, 2, 16 a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And of course, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, you probably all have this memorized. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves as a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. So there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation including being baptized. The repentant thief on the cross was never baptized, and we know he's where. What did Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. There's lots of other people in the New Testament who Jesus said were forgiven for their sins and saved before they were baptized. In fact, their baptism isn't even mentioned Paul told the Corinthians that he was glad he hadn't baptized a whole lot of them because they were all getting into the argument about, well, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos, and, you know, oh, I got baptized by Paul. You were just baptized by Apollos, right? He said, man, I'm glad I didn't, I didn't baptize too many of you. Well, if that was the case, right, I mean, it makes it hard to believe that, 
that baptism is vital for salvation if Paul was saying, no, I'm glad I didn't baptize. In other words, I'm glad I left a, a bunch of you still headed for hell. So baptism doesn't save a person. It simply demonstrates or proves that they are truly saved. And according to what we see in the book of Acts, baptism is the first act of obedience for every new believer. When someone got saved in the New Testament, they were immediately baptized. You've got the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, right, in Acts chapter 8. He's sitting there in a chariot reading Isaiah 53 of all places he could have been reading, right? And uh, Philip comes along and says, hey, what are you reading? Isaiah 53. Really? Do you understand what it's talking about? He goes, no, how, how would I understand this until, unless somebody explains it to me? And so he hops up there in the chariot with him and begins to exposit Isaiah 53. And uh, he, come to fa- he came to f- faith in Christ. And uh, they're riding along and he sees some water and he says, hey, here's some water. Why should I get baptized? I mean, it was like usually that quick. So in the minds of first century Christians, salvation and baptism were inseparable, so much so that baptism became synonymous with salvation. Again, not that it saved you, but it was almost like one and the same. So Peter, repent and be baptized. It was just kind of a one one package deal, if you will. But the fact that a person was willing to get baptized was the way that everyone else knew that they were saved. That was their way to go public with their commitment to Christ. F.F. Bruce, who was a a very um, trusted commentator for many, many years, this is what he said, quote, the idea of an unbaptized Christian is simply not entertained in the New Testament. It is not a personal choice, but a divine command. So baptism is a non-optional act of obedience for everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. And I would just challenge you, if you're a professing Christian and you say, yeah, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Christ, I've repented of my sin, I'm trusting in Christ alone for my salvation, but if for some reason you're unwilling to be baptized, you need to question the genuineness and sincerity of your commitment to Christ. Back in Acts chapter 2, notice what Peter went on to say here. He said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now again, we have to keep in mind, this is the book of Acts, this is a historical narrative It's not an epistle where we draw theological uh, principles and and principles for practice in the church. Uh, This is just telling us a story of what was going on and how the church was established. And so we have to be very careful, uh, you know, picking up, uh, you know, a model here and say, well, that's what we should be doing now. There are definitely points to be taken from the book of Acts like verse 42 that we're going to get to about continually devoting yourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread into prayer. That's a timeless principle. But this receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, we shouldn't 
apply to us in that we need to have some kind of second blessing experience to receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we know later on in the scriptures, Paul clarified this, the apostles clarified this in their epistles, that we receive the Holy Spirit when? The moment we're saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 13, talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. So the moment we're saved, we're, the spirit of God comes to dwell within us and abide with us. Again, what are we, where, where are we at here in church history? We're here on the day of Pentecost, and those who believed received the Holy Spirit after they were baptized. But again... As the church progressed, things changed. Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius and his family believed, they received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. Uh, We already read that passage. And I think that's the order that applies to us today. Again, the book of Acts is the development of the church. And so that's the order that it goes. You receive Christ. Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit as he promised, and then you get baptized. In other words, these young people that are getting baptized this morning, they're not going to come up out of that water and all of a sudden get zapped with the Holy Spirit. They already have the Holy Spirit abiding in them, abiding with them. So he says, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children. In other words, for all future generations of Jews, he's referring to a Jewish audience here, but then notice he says, and for all those who are far off, he's referring to the Gentiles there. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 is where Paul revealed the mystery that God's desire was not just for the Jews to be saved, but he wanted to use the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, right, to save the entire world, Jews and Gentiles. And so the Gentiles would be blessed by the Jews. It goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Notice the last phrase there in verse 39. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And again, we have another reference here in the scriptures to the doctrine of election. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. In other words, God has chosen certain people to be saved. And so a biblical view of salvation has to take into account God's choice, but it better not leave out man's choice. In fact, look at verse 21 of this chapter. Just go back, and this is... uh, Part of Peter's sermon, verse 21, chapter 2, verse 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's God's call and there's your call. God calls us and we call out to God. But guess what? There ain't anybody calling out to God who, hasn't God, God, who, has, who God hasn't called first. And you're like, that makes my brain hurt, okay? To try to fit all that together and make that make sense in my mind and I, it, it, it seems like it doesn't harmonize 
in our human minds, it doesn't make sense. But guess what? We should never try to harmonize what the Bible doesn't. And the Bible doesn't harmonize this. He just kind of puts it out there. And you're reading along, and it talks about election and how God chooses those who will be saved. And then you're reading along over here, and it says, hey, you need to repent. You need to choose Christ. Well, which is it? Yes, it's both. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility in salvation, it's, it's impossible. Not, not difficult for us to understand. It's impossible for us to understand. But it's one of those things that we embrace by faith. That God's word said it. We believe it. We don't argue with it. Notice verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and he kept exhorting them. In other words, Luke obviously didn't record Peter's sermon verbatim here. He just kind of gave us the gist of what Peter said. But notice he said, be saved from this perverse generation. That word perverse in the Greek is skolios, which if you have studied anything in the medical field, what does that sound like? Scoliosis, right? Which is a curvature of the spine. So he's talking about you need to be saved, rescued, delivered from this crooked, twisted, bent, corrupt world. And escape God's judgment that is going to come upon this present generation who had crucified his son. And I think that's in this context... He says, you need to be saved from this perverse generation. This was the generation of Jews that had murdered their Messiah. And judgment is coming. And we know that just a few years later in AD 70, the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem, just leveled it. Didn't leave one stone on top of another. But that applies to us today. We are living in a crooked, broken, bent, twisted, corrupt world or generation and we need to be saved out of it because judgment is coming and so Peter was begging with these people to get saved I'm begging with you today if you're not saved to get saved you are part of a perverse generation we all are and by God's grace he is willing to save us when we acknowledge our sinfulness, our perversity, that we are part of this perverse generation that is anti-God and anti-Christ and doing what we want and living our lives for ourselves and we need to repent of that, we need to change and we need to place our faith in Jesus as the only way that we can be saved from the wrath of God. Because when Jesus hung on the cross, God poured out his wrath against man's sin on his son. Jesus took the rap, if you will. He paid the penalty for our sin. And specifically for the sin of all those who would repent and believe. Notice it says, verse 41, so then those who had received his word, in other words, they, they did what he said. They repented. They called out to be saved from this perverse generation. They were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. 
So again, immediately after they were saved, they were baptized. 3,000 got saved, 3,000 were baptized, and 3,000 continued walking with the Christ, walking with Christ. Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I, I point that out because I think that's a lot different than what we see happening in the world today where you have people say, hey, we had 3,000 people get saved at this whatever, this conference or this you know, event, and then uh, of that 3,000, 100 got baptized, and of that 100 that got baptized, well, we can still find about 25 or so that are still walking with the Lord. In other words, it wasn't just this, a big emotional experience, right, where people made some kind of profession of faith in Christ, but it wasn't real because it didn't stick. I had that experience when I was in high school. I was all excited about bringing all my buddies from high school. We were going, we were juniors and it was our, the summer before our senior year and there was this summer camp that I wanted all my buddies to go and these are guys I'd been praying for and witnessing to and uh, I, I invited them all to come to summer camp with me one year. Uh, again, the summer before our senior year and they all accepted. And so we're here, like eight of my buddies from high school go to this summer camp and and, and they hear the message, and, and I just remember, like, the entire week, they were, like, dropping like flies. All of them were making some kind of decision for Jesus. And I was just like, God, this is amazing. This is a revival. You're answering my prayers. And we went home, and I started a little Bible study to try to get these guys together and get them plugged in to reading God's Word and, and uh, growing in their faith. And, and maybe a handful of those guys wanted to do that. The rest said no. And... And uh, sadly, to this day, I don't know one of those guys that's walking with the Lord. And uh, granted, I haven't kept up with them, so I may be pleasantly surprised someday when I, if I ever have a chance to bump into them, but as far as our high school years, he would have never known they went to summer camp and made some kind of decision for Christ. I think a point of application for us, our church should never have more people listed in our membership directory than we actually have people uh, are coming to church, right? Isn't that pretty typical? I don't know what your church background is, but, you know, oh yeah, we have, you know, whatever, 500 members, and you look around and go, how come there's only like 150 people here every Sunday, right? We always should have more people coming, right, than we do members, and also, we should never have any members who've not been baptized. In fact, I have pastor friends that they won't let anybody join their church until they're baptized. Because they, not because you have to be baptized in order to be saved or baptized in order to join their church. Some churches are like that. Oh, you've been baptized before, but you haven't been baptized in our church, right? It's not those kind of guys. They're just saying, hey, the, initia the, the public initiation into the body of Christ is baptism. And if you haven't been baptized, why should you be joining this church, right? Well, we've decided at this point in our history that we don't want to make it harder to get into our church than it is to get to heaven. So we strongly encourage people 
that they, when they go through membership classes, a question on their membership, like, have you been baptized since you turned from your sin and trusted Jesus Christ? And if they say yes, we're like, great. And if they say no, the next question is, will you be willing? Are you willing to get baptized? And we, we encourage them to, to get baptized. So when the sun rose on the day of Pentecost, there were 100 or so followers of Christ in the upper room, but by the time the sun had gone down, there were over 3,000 baptized believers flooding the streets of Jerusalem. This was a baptism for the ages, a baptism service for the ages. And again, baptism was just the beginning. It was just the start. Notice, again, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And I'm excited and encouraged that these young people that are getting baptized, they they get that. They understand this is not a one-and-done deal. I'm going to come and get baptized, and then you'll never see me ever again. I'm good to go. Got my get-out-of-hell-free card, right? No, they want to plug in to the life of this church. They want to grow together with us. They want us to hold them accountable uh, to their walk with Christ. And you'll hear them share that. That's their heart. So let me pray for them as they come. And uh, I know you'll be encouraged and blessed by what they have to say. Father, we're grateful for your word. And even while at points it can be confusing at first, and it would be easy to misinterpret it and misapply it. Uh, Thank you that you've given us uh, clarity throughout the entire Bible that can help us interpret more difficult verses. And so I pray, Father, as these young people come and, and share their testimonies of how you have saved them from this perverse generation, that you would help them and, uh, Lord, bless them as they take this step of obedience to honor you and to um, please you. And I pray that if there's anyone here who has yet to commit their life to Christ, that as they hear the gospel presented multiple times and watch the gospel played out as these young people are baptized by immersion, Lord, that your spirit would work in their lives and uh, bring them to repentance and faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.